Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everyone. Rob Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 81 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. As I record this episode, it is still the first week of March. Weather is trying to decide whether to be spring-like weather or winter weather. We have a pile of snow up here in New Hampshire. When I go to Massachusetts to coach, the snow almost disappears. It's so interesting to me sometimes how different the weather can be such a short distance apart. But I guess that's the beauty of New England. If you're watching me, I look like hell. When I first started doing this podcast, I always tried to look presentable. I put a little face mask on and get my skin clear and put on mascara. And sometimes I still do that. I also think I need to be authentic. And this is just what I look like today. I have quasi sweaty clothes on. I worked out twice already, but that's me today. You're listening to this on March 21st. So I would like to say happy spring. And if you are a Baha'i, happy Nauru's. This is the Baha'i New Year. It starts at sunset on the 20th and goes to sunset on the 21st. And it's the Baha'i New Year, which coincides with the spring equinox. So if I'm making believe as I record that it's the 21st, then I'm probably in a pretty good place. I have said many times on some of my Facebook Lives I've been doing how conflicted I am around spring. Spring was always my favorite season, spring and summer. I couldn't really pick between the two. And Molly's death really changed that because the first sort of negative doctor's appointment was February 28th and she died and so all of those days lead from winter to spring, February to May. In the two months in between, March and April, are months that have always had holidays and parties and excitement for us. Molly, Molly loved the progression of time and what comes next. And I remember when we took her to preschool testing, what do we do next? What do we do next? She was just so curious to keep doing things. And that never changed. I was a podcast guest a couple of nights ago for a podcast called The Grief Refuge. It was a wonderful interview. I had a really good time. If you can see me, you can see I have these two sort of Easter trees behind me. And these have stayed just like this since 2016. So Easter that year, it was a relatively early Easter. Molly and Gracie, you know, were, were 12 and 14 then, you know, almost 13 and 15. And so of course, all of the little traditions you do with your children that center around the magic of the holidays and Easter would be the Easter Bunny, of course. And Molly was to the age where she, you know, she would say to me, look, mom, we know how it works. And I said, well, I don't care how you think it works. If you don't put your Easter trees outside your door, the Easter bunny won't come. And this was when Kenny and I were separated. She did it. When I came home in the evening to just get everything ready for Easter the next day, there were the trees. So I have them there. So I shared this because this time of year was just like that. It was Easter and then it was their birthdays. And sometimes it was their birthdays and Easter together. Although we usually combine their birthday parties, it was always a big, wonderful, fun party. So I'm anxious right now. I'm struggling. This is a hard time of year for me, and I want it to be a good time of year. Having said that, I'm well along in the process of my book being published, and so I'm unbelievably excited about that. I finished my edits, which is sort of the accuracy of the story. You know, Virginia is the one that wrote it, and a lot of her terminology is very British, words to describe things that I wouldn't say. And so, you know, sort of that kind of switch up. I sent it off to both Virginia and the publisher, and now it is having another type of editing, which the publishers do, because they understand much more the flow of a book, how a book needs to be. 
And then we're picking a cover and a title and all of those things that will ultimately come together as a book. So there it is. So that makes me really excited. I feel like it's, you know, I'm just finally actually getting there. And then Kenny and I have been able to sort of solidify some plans on some remodeling of our house. We haven't really played out the actual remodel, but we have our money figured out and arranged in such a way that we can we can do all this without needing to take out a loan. We really need to focus on our kitchen, our downstairs bathroom, that whole area of the house. When we moved in, it needed updating and we've just been very happy to live with it the way it is. So it will be nice to have a new updated version of our kitchen. As I sit here, knee deep in the muck of my job loss and all those years that I was living a double life, I'm also trying very hard to be enthusiastic and positive. While I am having all of these struggles, <laughs> we had a big issue in our school district. We had a very angry parent playing to the school principal that he didn't like that the art teacher was a six foot tall man with a beard who sometimes wore dresses to school. That isn't what a girl looks like. And the response from the district was, wearing a dress has nothing to do with what gender you are. It just means you like that dress and you're wearing. The school district is very supportive of gender fluidity in terms of clothing and how you identify. So this parent really, really tried to connect it to sexual grooming. Like I could see that at a middle school or a high school where kids are older, but with little kids, it's too confusing. And I feel quite opposite as somebody with a master's in education and understanding child development. Children and young children have no preconceived notions. Everything is very, very right there. And so if my child came home, if Jack came home and said, mommy, I'm confused, usually ladies wear dresses and Mr. Smith is wearing a dress, I would simply say, People like to wear different things. Some people like to wear pants and some people like to wear dresses. Whatever makes you feel comfortable and good, you wear it. As long as it's appropriate in terms of you're at school, so it needs to be professional and covering you up. So that was how it all started. And then, of course, there were some, some not so great social media posts from, from his, I say youth, his like high school years and maybe early college. So it's been this horrible, horrible back and forth. And of course, it triggers my job loss. And we have a much better administration now. We have an honest superintendent who does things right, who doesn't bully and harass and create a shroud of secrecy and, you know, organize her band of flying monkeys to do all of her bidding. And it's interesting, in the years since since Raph has been gone, all of her sort of helpers have, some of them have been asked to go and some of them, you know, retired. And it's amazing. It's amazing. I was on the school board for several years with her how much she did that she wasn't supposed to do and just because she said she could and a lot of board members were her friends. So having said all that, I have reread everything that, that I was accused of. So I'm gonna give you a list of what I was accused of because I'm in a very triggered place. Sometimes I was late. I intimidated Lisa by making her watch me count money that I had brought to a dance to make change. I danced around in, the, in a window, jumping up and down. I used inappropriate language in health class. Oh, I had some extension cords going under my doorway between my classroom and my office. Apparently that's a fire code violation. Every week it was something else. I had a teaching assistant that hid behind a newspaper. He was the one that would say I was, I would talk about other teachers in a negative way to kids. And I remember that conversation. We had a conversation about why some kids didn't match with some teachers and how to strategies to make that better. It was the most appropriate, awesome conversation. So at any rate, I'm going through all of those things. And, you know, I was forced forced into resigning, scared, scared to death, threatened. And I think Chris Rath could have won. If I had fought for my job, I believe that she could have made it so that I was dismissed, doing nothing. Because that board, that school board at that time, was very caught up in her process. And I look at some of the things that teachers have been asked to resign over in our district, and they're, they're nothing, negative or bad. But I could 
publicized the list of teachers that were asked to resign. Separation agreements is what they're called. Nothing in, in most of those would be, would be criminal or weird at all. And so here's a young male teacher who the dressing issue is moot. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. Some of the things that he's accused of doing or some of the posts are, are a bit unsettling. I don't believe that there's any credibility to them in the sense that I don't think they mean anything more than a troubled teenager posting inappropriately. But our district really fought for him. He's back in the classroom and I had such a hard time, not a hard time with it because I think he shouldn't be teaching, but wishing I had had the same chance, you know, pulling it back to me, I guess. But I just still miss and grieve for all that I lost. You know, when I lost my job, it makes me really, really sad. I add up the years and I'm such a conflicted person because a part of me didn't want to be one of those people that taught for the same place in 30 years, but there's a really, really good movie called Mr. Rowan's Opus about a music teacher that same thing. He didn't want to just, I don't want to stay in one place. And after 30 years of inspiring students, his deaf son performs this amazing opus, this amazing symphony that was many of his students come back and play in it. So I thought, okay, I can be Mr. Hulvitt, you know, like I can, I can do that. And it was all just taken away. And, and I try to say this, not like, oh, poor me, I'm such a victim, but I was a victim. I was really, really just manipulated magnificently by these people. And so I spent about an hour prior to starting this recording, rereading the newspaper articles about me, rereading the articles I wrote, which bring up all the details and things I'd forgotten. We live in a time where every, every couple of years, a new issue comes up and, and that gets bandied about as the cause for everything. And right now it's narcissism and gaslighting and all of this. So I've done some research on that and actually am going to watch the movie Gaslighting. And the movie is about a man that fiddles with the lights in his house, the gas lamps. And his wife, it's dim in here. The lamps are dim. And he convinces everyone in the house to deny it. No, they're not. The lights are fine. And then he'll make them fine. And now they're fine. And then he'll dim them again. And it throws this woman off and she starts to feel very unsettled. And then she gets anxious. And the more anxious she gets, the more he ridicules her for her anxiety, even though he's causing it. I reread so, you know, pages and pages of what I went through. It's mind boggling. And what I'm hoping is that I can get other teachers to share their stories. Mr. Connolly has passed away, so he won't have a chance to tell his side of the story, but that's okay. <laughs> I can tell his side of the story. So I start this podcast in, in a really awful place. So I'm reading all of these things while I'm at the same time seeing a teacher who actually did things that could cause one to be asked to resign from their job, not the dressing, but those, the tweets and the, the social media. You know, if, if Jack were in school right now, I would just be on edge. Not that I think he still does these things, but I just think, what's the right thing to do here? So I'm in this, I'm just in this place. So what I try to do, of course, is swallow myself in activity and fitness. I've had two weeks of pretty intensive prospect coaching, way too many chips, driving to Amesbury five days you know, in a seven day period. You know, that's chunks up a huge amount of my day and all the little details that keep you calm and on track get forgotten. I have a pile of mail in my front office that it's a mess. Everything is a mess. And I'm just behind on all these little details. And so I realized, you know, I'm not getting drunk every night, which is a huge step forward for me. That was my last sort of medical assistance in my grief process, you know, really giving up the drinking. And when I do have drinks, and since January 1st, I've had drinks exactly three times. I never... I never feel like that was a good idea. I haven't overdrunk too much. One time I drank too much, but the other times, no, it doesn't help me. And so it, it solidifies my desire to stay alcohol-free. Happy New Year. What I want for this podcast on this day is to have a joyful sort of message. And it isn't where I'm at right now in my story or 
you know, in my current day-to-day life. So I think what I'm going to do is talk about some wonderful experiences that occurred for me during the years that I was living this double life with Roy. I had wonderful experiences with him and I had wonderful experiences with my family. And I had wonderful experiences professionally and athletically and socially. And when I look back on, you know, 2011 to 2015, that last year, so four years, four years of Gracie and Molly being eight and 10 at the start of my job loss to 13 and 15 when Molly died. So it's kind of like a five-year, five-year span of time. So four to five years. So in those years, Molly and Gracie developed an unbelievable group of wonderful friends. They were very, very involved in dance, Concord Dance Academy. And I remember when I was teaching at the high school and they were still really little and, and in CDA, I had, I had students in my classroom that were Concord students that danced and danced competitively. And I remember one, a girl named Jenny, I had had her at Walker School. And she was not at all caught up in the social dynamics of Concord High School. And I asked her, do you know they have a social group here? She goes, no, my social group is dance, my dance friends, and none of them come here. I come to school to learn and to get my work done. My social life is outside of school. And I remember thinking how lucky she was and how excited I was for Gracie and Molly to have that experience together. Thinking at the time that they would have each other, of course, but then they wouldn't you know, rely on who's popular and who isn't. Both of them, both Gracie and Molly struggled all through elementary and middle school, feeling unpopular and left out. I remember when Gracie was in fourth grade, and this was the year, the year that I was, you know, my job ended. Her best friend, Kelsey, went to Spain for a year with her family. And so Gracie was sort of left without her rock. And she befriended a little girl that had several developmental issues. I, God bless Gracie. This little girl just needed a lot of support and help. But she sort of lost all of her other friends. And she noticed it. And she noticed that, that the friends that she used to play with didn't talk to her so much. And then we had, you know, our neighborhood friends, a couple of whom were awfully mean to Gracie at school. And so she became very isolated and uncomfortable. Fifth grade was much better for her because she was in a class with people, you know, Kelsey was back and then Keisha and Rebecca moved here. And Molly also had a very difficult time, not feeling that she didn't fit in, although that is how she felt, but she was always worrying about kids that were having a hard time in school and kids who were struggling. School was, was not always easy socially for her either. And then with the undertoed in the house of me being so unhappy, Things were really, really very difficult. And so they developed their dance friends. And that in and of itself is also very stressful. They were in a big group. Like this year at CDA, there were like three graduating seniors. Gracie's year, there were like 10. And Molly's year, there were like 10, like big groups of kids. And they were in this big wave of kids that were unbelievable dancers. So, you know, you have these sort of groups. I remember one year, Molly and Gracie did a duo five, six, seven, eight, it was called. And then there was another one. And those were like the better dancers. And I remember at a competition, Molly and Gracie's duo won in this other dance that everyone assumed was better. And that wasn't received well. And I remember thinking how sad it is that you can't even support your own teammates. You're all Concord Dance Academy. Why does it matter within your team where you place? And I would really push this when I coached cross country that, you know, look at your shirt. We're all running for the same team here. Yes, if you're number one, you like to stay number one, but if your teammate can challenge you and maybe you finish a couple of races number two, that's only going to make both of you better. So this was a struggle as well. And in the years leading up to Molly's death, they were able to start what they call the dance squad. And Molly and Gracie were really lonely one year. And I said, you know what? You have each other. So when the breaks come, don't take part in the conversations where people are gossiping and mean. And they had a couple of friends that would go back and forth between these two groups. 
Molly just picked right up on it. So they started stretching on their own. And one by one, their friends, some of their other friends would come over and say, hey, what's going on? And they simply said, we're over here because we do not want to gossip and say bad things. We just want to be here in Cheslin. So if you want to stretch with us, that would be great, but we're not going to say bad things about anybody. And they had this group. And I remember Cindy, the owner of the dance studio, was just like blown away by it. And so then what happened is they started dancing in small groups. And so they did a small group called Stan. And then the next small group they did was Take Me to Heaven. And that was the year that Molly died. So suddenly they were really coming into their own dance-wise. They had this group of friends that loved them. They would come home from dance so happy. That was an incredible piece of their life during a time that home life, much of it they didn't know, was really falling apart. They also, at this point, sort of got into theater. When Gracie was in seventh grade, she got into theater. So that was like 2011. She tried out for Thoroughly Modern Millie and got a part. And then theater became a part of their lives. And I can remember both of them feeling like they had found their place in the world, in the theater world. Because when a director auditions for a play and you have all these kids now that are in a play together, they have to be okay. You can't lord yourself over anybody. The lead is no more important than the person with the smallest part because it all fits together. The machine doesn't work if even the smallest piece is broken. So they were able to develop this kind of attitude around lights. And I think ultimately it's what saved Gracie in regards to dealing with Molly's death is that she had friends everywhere. It wasn't just this one place. She had theater friends and she had dance friends. And her dance friends were in several different towns, Tilton and Northfield and Hopkinton and Bow and Pembroke, you know, like all these different places. So it wasn't like they were all here. And she had a handful at school, actually a pretty big number at Concord High at the time. And they were very supportive of her. Those were things that were realities in Gracie's and Molly's lives while I was living this double life. I said in the last episode how much fun they had at Flips and they had a wonderful time at Flips. It wasn't just the gymnastics. Robin would put on these overnights. It was a blast. I mean, we didn't get any sleep, but we would play games. The kids would run around. Sometimes it was organized, sometimes it was free. They'd bring snacks and food. And then they'd stay up until midnight. We did it on New Year's Eve one year. We watched the ball drop in Spanish. <laughs> for them, I really was able to create a pretty idyllic life for them. Financially, things got better. During this time, I talked also about Kenny getting really sick. We got financial assistance through Concord Hospital. That was a lifesaver. We had insurance now, and then Gracie and Molly were on Medicaid, and we were able to get some food stamps for a while on EBT card. I talked all about that. So slowly life stabilized here. You know, Kenny and I were not okay. And Kenny's business issues continued and his health continued to decline. So in that time, I feel very, very committed to staying here because Kenny is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. He now has a diagnosed disease called membranous nephropathy, which is essentially when your body attacks your kidneys. And so his kidney function was decreasing and decreasing. Eventually he had to go on kidney dialysis. Once you're on kidney dialysis for a long period of time, that's it until you get a kidney transplant or you die. And so this was a pretty stressful time. And I remember talking to Gracie and Molly many times around Kenny potentially dying and what that would be like. Really thinking this was, if anyone in our family was going to die, it would be Kenny. Those were sort of parallel realities for all of us. And as per usual, I was sort of in the middle juggling it all, making sure everything was sort of where it was supposed to be. Not a comfortable way to live at all. And then you add Roy into the mix. And I've talked before about the ups and downs we had. And it wasn't the trickiest part for me was we would never get together and then have the conversation face to face. If Roy wanted to suddenly pull back, it was always in a text message sort of out of the blue. And it typically said, I can't do this anymore. That's what it would say. 
how I remember it. Like I remember driving home from a road race with Johanna and she was driving and I was the passenger and that text came through. I don't think I can do this anymore. And so here we are, I'm driving home from a race like on a Sunday midday. So he must be home, you know, from a trip. And I wasn't always 100% clear. He would give me his airline schedule. He would text it to me so I would know when he was home and not. But I didn't always know exactly when. Sometimes he would call. I'm like, oh, you're home. And he'd be like, well, I've been home for two days. Well, I didn't know. I would be texting him, assuming he would still on a trip. We had some big separation that way. He had a lot of life and activities and connections where he lived that didn't have anything to do with me. So sometimes these things I believe would swallow him up. Our conversations would lessen. It wasn't like all the time. When we saw each other, was completely dependent upon his schedule. And we really did see each other. And when I say see each other, overnight see each other a lot, an amazing amount of time. And I know in talking to Kenny about all of this, that, you know, he's not stupid. He knew, but he was sick and he needed the stability of the house. You know, when you move away and you live all by yourself, sick, you know, he wanted to see his children. As I've said before, Kenny and I make very good roommates and we do well together under the same roof. A lot of our life was like that. It just sort of marched along and we would find this balance. Every once in a while, as I said, where I would text me that I can't do this anymore. And then the panic would set in for me and we would have a text conversation. And ultimately I would either say, look, we cannot have this conversation over text. I'll drive down later. And then oftentimes he would say, well, no, it's okay. Everything's fine. And it would be fine. The next time we saw each other, it was like that conversation never happened. So 2015, all of the things that were happening to me related to my job loss and to Amy and Bob, 2012 and 2013 were the months that I was granted a restraining order against Amy and Bob, as was Roy. I had forgotten this piece. They, at the same time, applied for restraining orders against us. And Bob's wanting a restraining order was, he claimed that I was trying to silence him. I just didn't want him to send me threatening email. You know, it was, it was very, very bizarre. And, you know, Amy would come, but she would sit back and not be a part of it. It was him. So I just feel, I remember one time, there I am at a table and there he is at a table. And I'm thinking to myself, Amy and Roy are the ones that had the divorce. Why are we fighting? You know, looking at it now, I realized that in those instances, Robert and I were just marionettes and Amy and Roy were the puppet masters in the sense that they were really the driving force behind all of this. It was their divorce. That particular restraining order included the four of us. And I remember the judge sort of looking at us and saying, what? You dress well, you're articulate, you're well-educated, stop it. Stop this. This is ridiculous. But the fact that Robert had sent a fake letter to a newspaper and the emails that I was able to produce with the matching IP address, the judge had no choice but to grant the restraining order. And Robert did try to appeal it. And during that time, so much public coverage, ugly public coverage of my life. And I remember my neighbor next door, why can't I write the truth? Why can't I write what really happened? And he goes, that will sell papers. And I'm like, you'll hurt your neighbor, somebody that you know, you're willing to hurt me to sell newspapers? And he just looked at me like, yeah, I guess so. So I have a hard time with him still. I don't have a great relationship with Ralph. He has got a lot of wonderful qualities, but that was a pretty rough experience for me. That's why I wrote all the patch articles. Now, I will reiterate the fact, if you are just sort of listening to this now or not listening in order, patch.com is a news site. I wrote a very detailed story of this. And if you Google my name and it all comes up, there it is. You can't miss it. That was also going on at this time. So 2012, 2013, 2014, it's just this dance. Sometimes things are fine. Sometimes they aren't. When I reread text messages and Facebook messenger messages, it's so much clearer now. And of course it is because it's, I can look back on it as opposed to looking at it while it's drowning me. 
And it was very, very up and down. We'd have these big, giant fights, Roy and I. And then he gets silent. He just stops talking and either disappears or, you know, or says threats. If you don't shut up, things are going to get really bad. Or if you don't stop talking, I'm leaving. I don't know. It was just that it was very clear that he decided it was done. It was done and he didn't talk anymore. I remember we had a big fight over 4th of July one year and I sat down on the dock along the water, looking out over the ocean. And then I went back like an hour later and I'm like, can we talk about it? And he's like, there's nothing to talk about. We're done. It's over. And we hadn't resolved a thing. He just decided it was over. And sure enough, you know, in the morning, it was like we'd never had an argument. Everything was perfectly fine. And oftentimes he would, he would say, if you would just listen to me, everything would be fine. If you would just do what I said, everything would be fine. And he's right in the sense that if I was compliant and did what he said, everything was fine. But it didn't mean it made me feel good inside. It didn't mean it was what was healthy or happy. So that relationship, as much as it gave me respite from the reality of my life here in Concord, was also an up and down tumultuous experience. In my journey in the last couple of years, since really being cut off from Roy, I've had some wonderful conversations with people from his life that had been willing to talk and share their experiences. The only comfort I get, I guess, is that I'm not crazy or we're all crazy. It's one of those things where you just find solace in the words of others when you give a phrase, like, I don't have time for that, or I don't have it in me, or I can't do this anymore. And the looks on their faces like, oh my gosh, yes, that's the exact phrase. And that's sort of off the beaten path here. But during those years, these were the three things that were balancing Kenny's health and well-being and all the financial issues that went with it. Molly and Gracie and giving them a happy, stable life where they could flourish and grow as individuals. And then Roy. In my mind, I didn't really have a set outcoming. I, mostly I thought that Gracie and Molly needed to live right here until they graduated high school, until they were on their own. Or at least until they were in high school and much more independent. I wasn't going to leave my children. And I also wasn't going to pull them up from everything they knew to go live somewhere else. And their relationship to Roy was tumultuous as well. They knew him as Morgan's dad. They weren't always super fond of Morgan's dad. Gracie was extremely sensitive and didn't always like the conversations in the atmosphere when she was overplaying with Morgan. So that always stayed with me. In the two or three times during these years, I was either together with Roy and it, like, went to a concert of theirs once. We went out for dinner together, the four of us once. And they were polite and kind, but very, very uncomfortable. And of course, part of it is just the dynamic. They just can sense that something is off is what I think. And I would just say that we're very good friends and that, you know, daddy didn't like we were good friends, but I really was trying to help him with Morgan and Teresa. Through all of that and through all of the things that happened, we became close. And so I just left it that. It was a lot of energy and I wish I could go back and do it differently. And it reminds me sometimes as well of my own childhood, where what I learned is that life is duplicity. You put on your costume. Oh, okay. I'm a 10 year old girl. I'm going to wear my 10 year old girl costume. And you go off into the world and you act like who you're supposed to be. Never once sharing what it's like when you get home and you can take off the costume and just be yourself. And so I learned at a very young age that life was never as it seemed. One couldn't predict life. And that you always had something to escape to. I spent so much of my childhood with my mother and my biological father, skiing and hiking and weekends away. And I was always admonished to keep quiet about those things. Don't say anything. Don't tell anyone where we were. Then I had, at the same time, I had an abuser an abuser who said the same thing. You cannot tell anyone that this has happened. Nobody will believe you. I just did as I was told. I cannot imagine. Sometimes I just laugh at myself. Like, I have to stop doing what I'm told. I don't know. At any rate, 
all of that came back to me when I was when I was living this life. And things like the restraining order and all the publicity were just overwhelming. Are you kidding me? Another thing that happened on the positive side is that in, in the fall of 2014, I was hired to coach Trust Country at Bow High School nearby. And that was amazing. It was just such a, it was just such a, yes, see, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not a bad person. I can, I can coach a public high school. And the athletic director who hired me was incredibly honest with his reservations. And he actually called up to say, I can't give you the job. We're going to give it to someone else. And that person backed out the day before the season started. And so he called and said, can you do it? Now, hindsight tells me maybe I should have taken my pride and said no, but I said yes. And I had two unbelievably great falls. And then the fall after Molly died, that AD was unbelievably supportive. And so I had three years there where it was good. And then the new athletic director, Mike Desolets, came. That's another whole podcast episode in and of itself. But life was hectic. And it was as an adult survivor of an alcoholic and abusive childhood would live. Creating scenarios for anything that might happen, being ready for whatever might come through the door. You don't know what's going to come through the door. And that was Kenny's health. And that was our finances and Molly and Gracie's happiness. That was what might be in the newspaper next. And that was Roy. Will he stay with me? Will he not? Is he seeing someone else? There were a couple of times that I came upon text messages and emails that he had written. I don't know how I got one. Somehow it ended up in my mailbox. And I remember him yelling at me for looking at his email. And I'm like, I didn't look at it. But I sent this long email. Oh my gosh, who, who do I think I am? You know, his upstairs neighbor, you know, had a daughter or somebody that he could date. And he said, yeah, I'd love to go out and hang out. You know, and I got very, very put off by that because I just felt like, well, why don't you go hang out with guys? And so, you know, and then he would very logically reiterate with, well, you're living with Kenny. And so, yes, I was living with Kenny. At the same time that all this was going on, Kenny and I obtained a legal divorce. He had had some financial issues and some tax issues that were better. Our family was safer if we were not legally married because that way, what's mine is mine. If you're married, and this happened to me with Kenny, the IRS came and took all this money, you know, thousands of dollars of my money. They levied our bank accounts. And because my, we had all joint accounts, it didn't matter. They took the money. And so the fallout of that was also a driving force in my unwillingness to really recommit to my marriage. I just felt like nothing was safe. Let me be clear. I created an unpredictable, stressful environment that mimicked a lot of my addiction years when I was younger and mimicked my crazy childhood. So yeah, I'm a psychological specimen. <laughs> yes, I am. During that time, I also had incredible CrossFit success. I had incredible Barb's track camp success. I know Chris Rath tried to kibosh on that as well. And that was a no-brainer. Track camp continued. It was phenomenal. And had huge community support through those things. I became much more respected and valued on the school board during those years. I was reelected. I was only not reelected once. That was a kindergarten issue. That was after Molly died. But in this time of tumultuous, big waves on the ocean life, good things were happening as well. I started dancing. I took tap dancing and had two or three years where went to the nationals. So much fun. So much fun in this dance class. I wish I actually wish I was still tap dancing. Maybe I'll maybe I'll take that up again. It was a wonderful way to be at CDA. It was a wonderful way to, to be at competitions with Gracie and Murray and not just be in the audience, but also on the stage. And I got to perform in the recital. These are things that were positive in my life. These are things that I likely might not have done had I not lost my job. I would not have found CrossFit. I don't think I would have been still busy coaching. And if I could go back to 2005 and change everything, I would in a heartbeat. 
Of course, that would mean that Molly wouldn't die. That's how I see it. I wouldn't have met the family. So I would still be having that job. You know, and, and maybe, just maybe, that would be a horrible outcome and things wouldn't be good. And of course, there would be no Jack. And there are some people that don't understand that either. How can you, how can you wish to go back and have Molly back knowing that there would be no Jack? And they're not mutually exclusive. It's two different realities. If Molly hadn't have died, I wouldn't have known Jack. I love knowing Jack. So what do I do with that? But this is where my head is sometimes. You know, I go around and around with these things. So four years, um, very, very duplicitous living, timing road races, officiating track meets, teaching hundreds of students at VLAPS. I became very, very successful at that. And also got my tags, which is a certificate of advanced graduate study. I started classes at Plymouth, met some amazing people, met some other people that were the victims of Chris Rath, the former principal, was one of my professors. I learned so much. And I got this wonderful certificate of advanced graduate study in educational leadership in arts integration. So basically integrating arts into learning. So music, visual arts, dance, theater, all of those things. I had a wonderful time, a really, really good time getting that degree. I did a lot of things that were positive and were helping me to move forward. So now I'll end here. <laughs> Next time, I'll talk more specifically about a domestic violence incident that happened between Kenny and myself and those last sort of 2015 into 2016 and how that reality was. Pretty interesting dynamic now that I look back. I also can see how I was just sucked into I see it now sometimes in my anger. I would get angry at Roy for things. And then I would just decide to be angry. And I was really off kilter. I could ruin a good night sometimes with my anger. And I do that still with Kenny sometimes. My desire to control when I'm feeling out of control. And then although seasons ago in this podcast, I talked about the year before Molly died, the beginning of the end of Molly. I'm going to retell that season, that part of my life, because I'm, it's so much more of, I'll include now that I've you know come out in a in a podcast to talk about my extramarital affair. I'll talk a lot more about that. So I hope the weather is beautiful. I hope you're enjoying spring. Jack turned two yesterday, March 20th. So hopefully we're, you know, at Disney enjoying ourselves or at least planning a birthday trip for Jack at Disney. That's sort of what we do. And I hope that you're doing good things for yourself. And I hope that once you've done something good for yourself, you can do something good for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins. <laughs>